Greetings, everyone, around the world and around the USA, UK, Australia, and China. Laszlo Montgomery here, coming to you, as always, via the China History Podcast. Today, we're going back 90 years to the year 1921. We're hopping on the bandwagon and joining in on the excitement and celebrations to commemorate the 90th anniversary of the founding of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, the Gongchandang, or GCD, as it's often referred to in chat rooms. I'm not here today to offer any opinions or remarks about their performance or how good or how bad the party is. Today isn't about passing judgment on the party and its achievements or failures. My Twitter feeds have been jam-packed for the past month with countless articles and commentaries from all manners of respected and wise sources who have given all kinds of opinions on the CCP and their achievements over the past 90 years. We're going to look at how the CCP sort of came together and what were the factors going on in the world that sort of created the perfect storm for the party to form and quickly become something. This is sort of a continuation of two podcast episodes ago when we looked at the May 4th movement of 1919. If not for China getting a raw deal in Paris at the peace conference, most likely there wouldn't have been any May 4th protest, and for sure no May 4th movement that followed. But the China delegation in Paris came home less than empty-handed, and the outrage felt in the Middle Kingdom was predictable. Patriots and outraged citizens in China took to the streets and protested against the injustice. Now, the peasants in the countryside, as usual, they were oblivious to all this, of course. The movement was mostly limited to the major cities. But anyone who could read couldn't help but get inspired by all the magazines, pamphlets, and whatnot that were circulating around China between 1919 and 1921. So the Allies that pounded out the agreement that became known as the Treaty of Versailles They unwittingly laid the necessary groundwork that, in short order, led first to the attractiveness of Marxism-Leninism as an alternative ideology, and then later to the actual founding of the party on July 1st, 1921. Now, today is July 1st here in the U.S. It's already July 2nd in China, and they already had their big celebration there. I'm sure everyone is going to breathe a sigh of relief when this 90th anniversary is history. You always have to be careful around these dates, as past experience has shown. Protesters love to draw on the magical powers of a historic date to add extra significance to their cause or whatever it is they're protesting. Naturally, the government in China didn't want anything left to chance, so the lead-up to this event has been very carefully orchestrated and controlled, much to the foreign expats and Outspoken critics chagrin. The big news seems to be what's up with former party boss Jiang Zemin, and why was he a no-show when it came for all the past greats of the party to walk up on stage? You might have heard, maybe not, there was a movie released in China. The Chinese name is Jiandang Weiyet, or The Founding of the Party. It's also being marketed as The Beginning of the Great Revival. There were two directors involved in this epic, Huang Jianxin and Han Sanping, It has a whole galaxy of stars, most famous that you might have heard of. are names like Zhao Yun-Fat and Andy Lau. Now, of course, this movie is being attacked as blatant propaganda, but I can't wait to see it. It traces the whole history of the party, starting from the Xinhai Revolution to 1921. 
There are plenty of stories and blog entries about how millions of Chinese were organized by the party cadres all over China to go see this film en masse so as to make the numbers look good and to give evidence of the people's enthusiastic embrace of this film, and therefore the party itself. The great thing about the founding of the CCP, well, for me that is, is to step back and look at all these cast of interesting characters and how one thing led to another and how everything sort of unfolded. It's a wonderful series of events that led up to the fateful meeting of the French concession in Shanghai, July 1st, 1921. Today, in honor of this historic date, I wanted to look at the history from about May 4th, 1919 to the time when the First Party Congress met in Shanghai. This won't be a very long podcast today, but it will give you a fair idea what all the hoopla is about in China and why this date is so important. Well, the Big Bang, if we can call it that, happened in October 1917 with the Bolshevik Revolution. This is where it all started. And two years after that, we got the May 4th movement. One comes right on top of the other. You couldn't ask for more perfect timing. Up till this point, generally speaking, of course, ever since China was pried open like a clam in the second half of the 19th century, the only Western model of government they were used to were those of the great Western powers and later Japan, which was a Western constitutional monarchy with Japanese characteristics kind of thing. Chinese intellectuals and leaders going back to the Qing emperors pondered what form of government was the best for China, given China's particular circumstances and all. The English kind, the French version, the Japanese version, the German. Well, now comes a totally new one onto the scene. Fresh with success and all the possible prestige you can get being the leaders of the movement that actually toppled an oppressive and self-serving monarchy. Okay, the revolution happened, and then the Bolsheviks seized control. But of course, nothing is finalized till 1922, and you have the whole nasty business of the Russian Civil War that follows. But October 25th, 1917, that was a big day in more places than just Russia. But still, no one was rushing to Moscow to join the revolution, nor was there any traction on the ground for a communist movement in China. But all this changed after China was dissed and humiliated at the Paris Peace Conference that culminated in the Treaty of Versailles. If you recall from the episode when we discussed May 4th, once word hit the streets of Beijing and all points throughout China about how the matter of Shandong turned out, it triggered this immense wave of anger and revulsion against the West. More than a few people, especially the intellectuals and the more articulate patriots of the day, said, hey, you know, these Western powers have pretty much never been nice to us. They exploit us for all they can get and push us around as they please. We join their side in the Great War with this implicit understanding that if, if things go the right way, China would get all the German concessions back. But what happens? Well, we all know how it turned out. So beginning in May of 1919, a mere 19 months after the Bolsheviks toppled the provisional government in Russia, the situation just couldn't have been more ripe for Mr. Communism to make his entree into the Middle Kingdom. After everything that China had just gone through, what could top a system of government that not only promised an overflowing cornucopia of abundance, but at the same time railed against the twin evils of capitalism and imperialism? This was the most perfect of ointments 
to rub on this raw wound festering in China. They literally started from scratch. Karl Marx didn't have that much of a following, and the same could also be said about Lenin. Communism, I mean, this was ten times more anathema to the traditional Confucian Chinese way of doing things than what they had studied up till now about you know, Western political systems. I mean, what would the Duke of Zhou, good old Zhou Gong, what would he say to all this talk of violent class struggle and overthrowing governments? Marxism-Leninism wasn't something that naturally appealed to the Chinese character. All it really would take was for some cataclysm to open the door. Well, as I said, the whole May 4th movement, that was the oil that greased the skids that facilitated this introduction of Marxism into China. So how did it all happen? In the May issue of Chen Xiu's New Youth magazine, you all remember that one, I know, he wrote a sort of a, a Marxism 101 intro about how the whole Marxism thing worked. This sort of set off an initial buzz about Marxism as an intelligent alternative to what they thought was previously best for China. That anti-imperialist nature of Marxism, that really resonated with the Chinese at this particular time. His fate would have it, Li Dazhao, remember him, Li Dazhao and Chen Duxiu, they are the two founders of the CCP. Li Dazhao was the librarian at Peking University. He set up a study group there. I should do a podcast on the history of Beida, as Peking University is known in China. This was ground zero for the earliest beginnings of communism in China. Chen Duxiu was also at Beida, as was Hu Shi. So this study group formed by Li Dazhao, it ultimately became the main salon in China, as far as where the newest ideas were coming from. Chen Duxiu, however, he bolts from Beijing right after May 4th and heads to Shanghai. So with the godfather of the movement now in Shanghai, the center of gravity started to tilt in that direction. Chen does in Shanghai what Li was doing in Beijing. He was setting up these Marxist study groups. This whole thing spread to other cities in China, too. The main point was Chinese were looking at Marxism seriously for the first time ever. So word trickled back to V.I. Lenin in Russia, and at once he realized the possibilities. Now, China and Russia were not what you'd call, at this time, the bestest of friends. After all, Russia was not without guilt, having fed off the fat of the land in China along with the rest of the other foreign powers. Russia's acts of imperialism were not forgotten in Manchuria, not to mention always encroaching on Chinese territory in the northwest along the Xinjiang border. But nonetheless, Lenin gets word of this interest in China about Marxism. But nonetheless, Lenin gets word of this interest in China about Marxism. And of course, he knew China was a terrible victim of foreign imperialism at its worst. So Lenin had the common turn, the Communist International, set up in 1919. And a year later, in 1920, he has the Far Eastern Bureau of the Common Turn established out in Siberia. He called for this bureau to send out feelers, establish contact with those radicals in China sympathetic to the cause, organize cells, teach all about party organization, democratic centralism, discipline, the whole ball of wax. Now, the urge to engage China and win them over to Marxism was more than simply a matter of spreading world revolution. Russia in 1920 saw China was weak, and now Japan was stronger than ever. Remember, Japan made mincemeat of Russia in the 
Russo-Japanese War, 1904-1905. So Russia had been nervous about Japan ever since in the, in the far eastern portion of the country. So if a dose of Marxism-Leninism could jolt China back to life, so to speak, it would be a nice insurance policy against any Japanese moves against Russian interests in Asia. Hedging their bets, though, the Comintern also reached out to Sun Yat-sen and the Nationalists. Sun was desperate for support after World War I ended, and the Comintern came to his rescue with support that took various forms. Now, why on earth would they help the Nationalists? The whole episode of the Bai Si Kong Bu, the white terror in China, was still a good seven years away. Marxist-Leninist theory said that socialist revolution would occur in stages. And the way the Bolsheviks saw it, China had to go through a period where the nationalists would rule and then China would develop, and then the next stage would involve the overthrow of the nationalists by the communists. I know this sort of sounds strange. Why build up the nationalists only to tear them down later when the time was right? Well, this is how they did it initially. The Comintern was helping both the communists and the nationalists and forced the two to get along. This is where Sun Yat-sen's whole notion of Sanmin-chu-yi, or the three principles of the people, came about and became the party ideology. The three principles are nationalism, which was anti-imperialist, democracy, which was anti-monarchy, and people's livelihood, which was socialism. So the nationalists are now getting some major support from Russia. By 1925, you have a thousand military advisors in China helping the nationalists to build an army. Chinese officers were sent in great numbers to Russia for military training. Among these groups of officers was none other than Jiang Kai-shek, Jiang Jieshi. He spent four months in Russia and came back to China and helped found the Wampoa Military Academy, which is sort of the West Point of China. The deputy head of the academy's political education department was none other than uh, Zhou Enlai. By 1922... The Comintern is really trying to bring the communists and nationalists together to unite as one force, to bring down the government and stand up against the power of these regional warlords. Russia had money on both horses. Let's take a step back and talk for a bit about Chu Chiu-bai. His is an amazing story. He lived this tragic life with a father who went from riches to rags and became an opium addict and a mother who faced so much pressure from society and her in-laws that she committed suicide in a sort of a grisly way. Chu was left destitute and left his native Changzhou and went up to Beijing in 1917, where he studied at the Russian Language Institute, learning both French and Russian. The institute offered a scholarship and a small stipend that appealed to the destitute Chu. Then May 4th happened, and that changed his life as it changed thousands of others. He became a radical Marxist, totally won over to the cause, and he became a regular attendee of Li Dachao's regular study groups at Beida. Chu was greatly inspired by Li Dachao to look to Russia as the path China should follow. In October 1920, Chu Chou gets the chance of a lifetime to travel to Russia as the correspondent for the Chen Bao, which was one of the many newspapers in China. He seizes the opportunity, and he knows not one Chinese, no one from any of these study groups had ever stepped foot in Russia. No one had gone to the very center of the revolution since the Bolsheviks took over power. He could be the first, and he was. 
He stayed there until January 1923, whereupon, after receiving an invitation from none other than Chen Duxiu himself, Chu Bai returns from Russia with all this first-hand information. He was sort of a Zhang Qian in a way. Zhang Qian, of course, the adventurer we discussed last time, who was the first Han Chinese to bring back a first-hand account of the lands to the west of China. So was Chu Bai, in a way, an adventurer. He came back from Russia and became a major force in the party until he met his tragic ending just before the commencement of the Long March. Today, he's considered a great early hero of the party. Around six months before Chu Bai heads to Moscow, the Comintern sent their first agent to China to get things organized and see what was going on. Once the Bolsheviks had taken Siberia in January of 1920, a logistically efficient overland route was now wide open between Russia and China. This first agent was Grigory Voitinsky. He came to China with his wife and an ethnic Chinese-Russian, Yang Mingjai. Yang's family had emigrated to Siberia years before. Thanks to introductions from a Russian emigre in Beijing, the three first met with Li Dazhao. Li Dazhao provided the necessary intros to hook them up with Chen Duxiu, who was now based in Shanghai. Voitinsky and Yang went down to Shanghai in May 1920 and had their first meeting with Chen Duxiu. They brought with them a veritable treasure trove of information, including all the essential communist literature of the time, including the thought of Lenin and John Reed's classic book, Ten Days That Shook the World. They spent time with Chen, teaching him everything and everything about party organization and giving him all the inspiration he could possibly hope for. They urged Chen to form a communist party. And he does so, and it's all set up by June 1920. They also set up two spy organizations that took the form of the Sino-Russian News Agency and another foreign language school. And these two fronts were used effectively as a recruiting mechanism. Then, just as this was happening, into Chen Duxiu's life walks none other than Mao Zedong. Mao was paying a visit to Chen and was thoroughly impressed with Chen Duxiu in every way. Mao had first gone to Beijing as part of a delegation from Hunan that was lobbying the government there to take action against these warlords in the area. Whilst in Beijing, Mao met with Hu Shi and uh, Li Dazhao. It was after this meeting that Mao went to Shanghai where he met Chen. Now, the official CCP history tends to play down this point, but at this stage where the party is being born, Mao isn't anybody important yet. True, he showed up on Chen Duxiu's doorstep at the most opportune time. In August 1920, the party is informally set up and a provisional central body is created to, you know, sort of hold it all together until a formal party congress could be held. It's here where the CCP could be said to have been founded. But Mao didn't take part in this founding of the party. He was hardly among the elites yet who, you know, had already made their marks and had played a major role in the May 4th movement. But he was there on July 1st, 1921, when the uh, First Party Congress met. And so this date is emphasized as the real founding of the party, and it's 90 years later, today, that China is celebrating this historic event. Now, waves of Chinese are now flowing into Russia to study. By this time and into 1921, Chu Chou Bai has become invaluable to his Russian hosts as 
an interpreter, and also as an instructor. He was responsible for facilitating all this transfer of knowledge about Marxism, Leninism to Chinese radicals who were studying in Russia. Russia had scored a huge political victory when it had backed off from all their concessions and Tsarist claims in Liaoning and other parts of Manchuria. The Chinese were very appreciative of this, and their esteem for what the Bolsheviks were doing in Russia grew by leaps and bounds. So a nucleus was forming around Li Dazhao and to a much greater extent around Chengdu Xiu. By June of 1921, there was a new Comintern agent in town. This one was the Dutch communist Hendrika Snivleit, who is better known by his pseudonym Maring. It was Maring who forced the nationalists and communists to join together and cooperate. This would ultimately prove to be a big mistake, but it seemed like a good enough idea at the time. But it's Maring who was the one who organized the meeting that took place on that fateful evening of July 1st, 1921. He had organized the meeting at a deserted girls' school in the French concession of the International Settlement in Shanghai. You can visit this holy shrine today, conveniently located adjacent to the pleasant little enclave of Xintian Di. There were 13 delegates who showed up, representing 57 party members. The Comintern agent, Maring, was also present. They all met in this building, but... Everything got a little crazy when they caught someone peeking in through the window. They knew that the local warlord in the area had paid off the police to keep an eye on these communists, so fearing a double cross, they all hightailed it to the town of Jiaxing, which in those days was a few hours away. They all surreptitiously board this pleasure boat that anchored itself out in the middle of the South Lake, or Nanhu, and uh, posing as tourists on this pleasure boat, they finished off their meeting and declared the founding of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. So this site in Jiaxing is uh, no less sacred than the site in the old French concession. The following month, Chen Duxiu was made the first party general secretary. But Chen wasn't there. Neither was Li Dazhao. So who was there? Well, there were 13 delegates. These 13 delegates were Li Da. Li Hanjun, representing Shanghai, uh, Zhang Guotao and Liu Renqing of Beijing, Wang Jinmei and Deng Enming of Shandong, Dong Biwu and Chen Tanqiu of Hubei, Chen Gongbo of Guangdong, and representing the members of Hunan province were none other than Mao Zedong, Hu Shuhang, and Zhou Fohai. Of these 13 delegates, which also included a representative from Japan, only two became people of any historic consequence. One, of course, was Mao, and the other was Zhang Guotao, who would turn out to be Mao's major rival for control of the party leadership. But if you're familiar with the Long March, you'll know that Mao outflanks Zhang Guotao, and when they all reach Yan'an in 1935, Mao is firmly in command. A year after this fateful meeting, as many as half of the people involved in this founding of the party in 1921, they had already left the movement. The objectives of this July 1st meeting included the formation of trade unions, the propagation of newspapers, magazines, and pamphlets under control of the party central executive committee. Schools were to be organized to educate the working class. Prior to this time, the CCP had formed informal alliances with other radical parties, but now they broke with everyone and decided to go it alone. 
They called for the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism, the establishment of the dictatorship of the proletariat allied with the peasants, as well as with the Comintern. Detailed criteria was formed regarding membership to the party, party organization, and finances. And last but not least, secrecy was demanded. All organizing efforts were to be kept as secret and low-key as possible. In these early days, in the 1920s, the Communist Party of China was taking its cue from the Comintern. Communist Party membership today numbers 70-something million members, but in 1922, CCP membership barely numbered 200. They didn't deal direct with the people in Moscow. The early handlers of the CCP was always the Comintern Far Eastern Bureau, which was run out of Irkutsk. They called all the shots and served as the guides as the Chinese communists started walking down this path. Now, this too is played down, because after the Chinese and Soviets came to a bad end in the 1950s, great lengths were taken to stress that these early stages were much less dependent on Russian assistance than thought, and that it was the May 4th movement more than Russian influence that led to the formation of the party. And then also in the summer of 1924, those dedicated communists who had left China to study and work in Paris had come back home. These included Zhou Enlai, Deng Xiaoping, and Nye Rongzhen, all later giants of the party. The KMT and CCP were forced into this unholy alliance forced by the Comintern agent Maring. How that all worked out in the end is fodder for another day and another podcast episode. We're going to leave off here. I only wanted to focus on the big historic event itself and not get into too much detail about the aftermath. When we do a podcast later on covering early party history, we could come back and pick up where we left off. For now, I only wanted to give you a little appreciation for the history behind the big celebrations going on in China in commemoration of the 90th anniversary of the founding of the party. And so, as Professor Bob might say, I hope you enjoyed that. This is your humble host and narrator, Laszlo Montgomery. Yes, the very same Laszlo Montgomery featured in the June 17th issue of the China Daily. I'm signing off once again from the lovely and respectable town of Claremont, California, on the easternmost edge of Los Angeles County. I invite you to join us next week for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. Take care, all.